This is a recording from the More Than the Score lecture series at the University of Virginia, made possible by the Office of Engagement's Alumni Education Program. More than 50 years into the space age, we are still just beginning to explore the solar system. Why do we go to space? What can we learn? Kathy Thornton, a veteran of four space shuttle missions who was recently inducted into the NASA Hall of Fame, describes her experiences in space and shares her perspective on the future. She's introduced by Tom Falders, president of the UVA Alumni Association. I have the distinct pleasure, pleasure of uh, introducing Kathy Thornton. Kathy is the professor at the University of Virginia School of Engineering and Applied Sciences in the Department of Science, Technology, uh, and Society. And she also, if she didn't have enough to do there, she's also the associate dean for graduate programs. She, she overlooks all the engineering graduate programs. She divides her time between teaching and obviously managing the graduate program. Um, <clears throat> selected by NASA in May of 1984, uh, Kathy is a veteran of four space flights. If you're counting, 33, 49, 93, or excuse me, 61, and 73. 73, of course, took place in 1995, and you all knew that, of course. <laughs> She's logged over 975 hours in space, including more than 21, hour, 21 hours of extravehicular activity, or EVA for those of you who are in the know. <clears throat> and was recently inducted into, as, as Althea said, the U.S. Astronaut Hall of Fame. Uh, she's a mission specialist for the crew of STS-33, which launched at night from the Kennedy Space Center uh, in Florida in 1989 aboard Discovery. Uh, the mission carried a Department of Defense payload and other secondary payloads. In 1992, on her second flight, she served on the crew of STS-49 on board a maiden flight of the new space shuttle Endeavour. Uh, during the mission, the crew performed four EVAs, or spacewalks, as commonly uh, called, uh, to re retrieve, repair, and deploy the International Telecommunications Satellite, or Intelsat uh, satellite, and demonstrate and evaluate numerous EVA tasks to be used in the assembly of the space station, which, of course, is up there now. The following year, she was again a mission specialist, um, and particularly an EVA uh, specialist at this point in time, uh, aboard the Space Shuttle Endeavour on the STS-61 flight. Uh, they they uh, uh, focused on the Hubble Space Telescope servicing and repair mission. During the 11-day flight, HTS was captured and restored to full capacity through five spacewalks by four astronauts. I don't know if anybody remembers that one, but I do remember being riveted to television watching that. It was just unbelievable. Um, <clears throat> on our final mission in 1995, Kathy served aboard the Space Shuttle Columbia um, as the payload commander of the second United States microgravity laboratory mission. Uh, the mission was focused on material science, biotechnology, combustion science, physics of fluids, and other scientific experiments um, housed in a pressurized space lab module. Since leaving NASA, Thornton, uh, Kathy has served on several review committees and task groups most recently, the Return to Flight Task Group, which evaluated NASA's work in meeting the goals set by the Columbia Accident Investigation Board prior to the resumption of the space shuttle flights. She also served several years on the National Research Council Aeronautics and Space Engineering Board, um, and she's also co-author on, uh, on Pearson Scott Forsman's K-6 through grade science program. While serving as an astronaut, Kathy also uh, was the head of the NASA Johnson Space Center Education Working Group, which coordinated educational outreach activities of astronauts uh, and professional educators working under the Teaching from Space contract uh, with Oklahoma State University. Videos, printed materials, and live events with school children and astronauts in orbit were some of the products of this group. 
Prior to becoming an astronaut, Kathy Sturt was employed as a physicist by the U.S. Army Foreign Science and Technology Center in Charlottesville, Virginia. She's a recipient of numerous awards, including the NASA Space Flight Medals, the Explorer Club Lowell Thomas Award, the University of Virginia Distinguished Alumna Award, the Freedom Foundation uh, Freedom Spirit Award, and the National Intelligence Medal of Achievement. And I should note that Kathy's also an alumna of the university, receiving her PhD in physics uh, from the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences in 1979. So please welcome Kathy Thornton. Thank you. Thank you. I picked a great day for a football game. Uh, great weather out there, so for those of you who are going, I hope you enjoy that. I'd like to talk about um, the space program in, in terms of uh, historical perspective, because that at least gives me a better idea of, of where we're going, if we know where we've been. Um, my Uncle Charlie died a few years ago at 95 years of age, and he remembered traveling across Arkansas in a covered wagon when he was a child. And then he watched me launch twice on the space shuttle. So that's just a, an amazing illustration of how much things can change in one lifetime. And I think when you think of it that way, it sort of opens up your mind to possibilities, things that we know are impossible today are not going to be impossible when some of these children get to be our age. So that's, um, that sort of puts it in the perspective of one lifetime. But if we can think about exploration in a broader perspective than one lifetime, but many lifetimes, or hundreds of years of, uh, of exploration, we sort of get a different perspective. The, sort of our history of exploration in the last millennium, at least from a Western European perspective, is kind of divided into several eras. This one um, this is illustrated by this map. This is what we in the West thought the world looked like in 1490, two years before a very important event. And um, it's based on this map is based on the calculation of the circumference of the Earth that had been done by the Greeks around 140 AD. And they were wrong by a little bit. They measured the polar circumference and not the equatorial circumference. And so when they put the known land masses on this smaller than should be Earth, this is what they got. And there's not room for a couple extra continents or oceans in that. But you can see why Columbus thought it would be a swell idea to go from here around the backside, imagine this thing wrapped around as a globe, to get over here rather than doing what the, tech, the other route, the, te the technology of the time, enabled them to do, and that was to creep around the coastlines of all these continents to get over here. You can see that's an enormously longer journey. So he had a pretty good idea. It didn't work out quite as he had expected, but uh, he had a pretty good idea. So this illustrates sort of age of exploration when we had the technology just to creep around the coastlines, just barely leave uh, dry land. And then we moved into another age of exploration. This is a map from 1543, one lifetime later. And you can see how the world, or our view of the world, enormously changed in one lifetime. This is a map that um, depicts Magellan's voyage or expedition around the world. He started out with five ships, and only one made it, and he wasn't on it. He was killed in the Philippines en route, which is a reminder that exploration is neither cheap nor safe, but it changes our world absolutely changes our world. So this illustrates another age of discovery, two or, two or three hundred year period of discovery in the last millennium, where we had the technology to cross the great oceans of the planet. And we did a lot of that. And you notice that there, even, there are still some things missing here. You know, Australia, New Zealand, um, bunch of Antarctica, there's a little tip of it right there, but largely those were, were, were missing. 
Australia and New Zealand became part of our consciousness in the 18th century. And then uh, other parts of Antarctica we obviously didn't explore until even into the 20th century. So this represents an age of discovery, a couple hundred year long. And then we moved into the next one, where we had the technology to cross the continents, to explore the interior of these great continents that we now knew how to sail around. This is North America before Lewis and Clark. Um, there were other great explorers of other continents, including David Livingstone in Africa and um, von Humboldt in South America and, and some of the others I can't remember. But this age of exploration actually went into the 20th century with the exploration of Antarctica for the first time. So we began exploring the interior of continents. And then in the middle of the 20th century, we entered a new age of exploration, a two or 300 year period, whatever it's going to be, that is governed by the technology that we have and that we develop during this time. And this is uh, the space age, where we've just begun stepping off this planet for the first time. This uh, started in the 1950s, actually as part of a scientific effort. Uh, Sputnik was not intended to be an a, um, instrument of the Cold War. It turned out to be that, but it wasn't originally intended to be that. In the 1950s, a bunch of scientists got together and said, um, why don't we have an international geophysical year where we, we all study the Earth-Sun system? And it's, uh, it was reminiscent of the international polar years that happened on 50-year intervals since about 1880-something. And uh, these guys that, that's, that's initiated this International Geophysical Year had actually participated in the 1932 International Polar Year. And there had been a great increase in technology due to World War II in tracked vehicles and air support in the intervening years. And so they thought, why wait the full 50 years for another one of these sort of assaults on the unknown? Why don't we do it at the 25th year interval or anniversary? And because there's great new technology that is available now that allows us to do things we couldn't do 25 years ago. And also because they knew if they waited the full 50 years, none of them would be around to participate. So they initiated the International Geophysical Year. And um, this union of scientists said, for any of the countries who are able to do this, we'd like you to launch a satellite so that we can begin to study the Earth-Sun system from that vantage point. And the Soviets said, OK, we can do that. And the Americans said, yeah, we can do that. And of course, the Soviets got there first. And that became you know, the beginning of the space race. Well, we finally won the space race. We managed to spin the Soviets out of, um, out of the game and, and get to the moon. And that was our first step off this planet, really off this planet. Um, even at the time of the first lunar landing, the, the budgets were, be, were being cut. Um, it was clear we were going to win the race. And so um, Apollo. 11 landed on the moon, and 12, 14, 15, 16, 17 continued to land on the moon, more out of inertia than anything else. But Apollos 18, 19, and 20 were canceled. There were rockets built, there were crews in training, and they were canceled because we sort of uh, lost interest. We had a Vietnam War going on. We had civil unrest in this country, and, and so that part of exploration was, was canceled. Those rockets are lying in rocket parts, parks in Alabama, Texas, and Florida right now. If you want to go see them, they're there. They never went to the moon. Um, and we pulled back. We pulled back and um, began to see what we could do as far as not really exploring space, but learning how we can use the environment of low Earth orbit. And so at the end of the Apollo period, um, when NASA had this great plan for a space transportation system, and that's what STS means on the front of all these flight numbers. STS-132, STS-133 means space transportation system. And the space transportation system was going to include shuttles to get to orbit. That's why it's called a shuttle. 
space stations, plural, in orbit, space tugs that could go out and grab satellites and drag them to the space station for refurbishment and refueling and repair. All that was part of a big transportation system. Well, they had to decide, budgets being what they are, you can't build all that at once, whether to build a space station and no way to get there or a space shuttle and nowhere to go. So the option was to start with the space shuttle, which was first launched in 1981. And for a period of 20 years, the space shuttle was its own destination. So it was a rocket ship for eight minutes. It was a space station for up to two weeks. And then it was a glider with the aerodynamics of a brick for about the last 30 minutes of its, of its flight, and then was recycled and used again for, for more flights. So the space shuttle period, and we're about to retire the space shuttle, sadly, but you know, it, it, its real legacy is, is not as a taxi to space, I think, but its legacy is all the things that we have done with it that it were never intended to do, that it's, it's, um, its lifetime in orbit. So I'll tell you a little bit about that, because that's my little heartbeat in history. And when I think of the space age as a period of two or 300 years, you know, my lifetime and my participation really was you know, a fraction of a heartbeat of that but it's mine. So this is the, the shuttle sitting on the launch pad. The next uh, launch is scheduled for November 1st. I know there's some people here who are planning to go to that, so we all have our fingers crossed that it will go off on schedule. So there is a space shuttle sitting out there right now that looks just like this. The crew is going to climb in through this orbiter access arm that's 195 feet above the ground. And the only place they can live is in this area right here. These are the overhead windows on the flight deck. These are the forward-looking windows for the pilot and the commander. And uh, there's two decks there, so that's, that is your living area with um, six of your best friends and all of your equipment and spacesuits and clothing and food and all that for you know, up to two weeks back before we were visiting the space station. This, is, this was it. This was your home. Um, the rest of it is unpressurized. And it's held to the launch pad by eight bolts, four on the bottom of each solid rocket booster, and nothing else is, is holding it down. And um, they're about this big, and, and after the flight, the crews get one as a souvenir. And they make great bookends because they weigh a ton. <laughs> they really are. Um, when, the, when we get ready to launch, the main engines that are on the back end of the shuttle part light six seconds before launch. And they have to come up to 100% power um, quickly or else they shut down and we abort the launch and come back another day. And when that happens, because this is being held down by the, by the solid rocket boosters, it actually pushes the whole stack over. There's a thrust out of the main engines. It pushes it over. And the tip of this tank moves by about three feet. That's how much. And you can feel it inside. When it springs back through the vertical, that's T0. That's when the solid rocket boosters light. Those eight bolts are split apart explosively. And, and off you go. You know, once, once the solid rocket boosters light, you're going because you can't turn them off. That's one of the downsides of solid rocket booster technology is they're, they're firecrackers. Once you light them, you can't stop them. You can't stop them. So you're going to go wherever they take you. The main engines actually burn hydrogen and oxygen. And because that's a liquid, they can throttle those. So you can turn those off and, or pull them back, but you can't do that. So if you ever see a launch from this angle, you're way too close. <laughs> so for those of you planning to go down for November 1st, this is not the seat you want. Um, but it does illustrate that the, the difference in fuel, this is solid, the main engines burn a hydrogen-oxygen fuel. So the byproduct of that is just water vapor. And so you don't see much coming out of the back of that. The, the uh, solids have an aluminum rubber type fuel, so a lot of junk comes out of the back of that. There's about 2 million pounds of thrust in each of the solids and a million in each of the main engines for about 7 million pounds of thrust on about a 6.5 million pound vehicle at liftoff. 
Even this is closer than you will see a launch. Uh, this was taken by one of the explosion-proof cameras up close to the launch site. But it's an illustration, or it reminds me to, to tell you about the difference between the speed of light and the speed of sound. We all know that there's an enormous difference from that. But if you're watching the launch from the NASA Causeway, and some of you who are going down here might be doing that, it's about five miles away from the launch site, five or seven, depending on which of the, the launch sites they're using. And so when you, you listen to the countdown, and it gets down to, to T minus six, five, and then you see this, this plume of water vapor rising up, because that's the exhaust of the, of the main engines, and it sort of swallows the whole launch pad. And then you go three, two, one, and then the shuttle sort of pokes out of the top of that. And it gets to right about here, and you hear nothing. You hear absolutely nothing. It's total silence, because everyone's holding their breath, and there's nothing. And then it hits you. So it's already you know, this high or higher, and then it hits you. And you, know, you not only hear the launch, you, you feel it. If you talk, you sound like this, and your pant legs shake, even at that distance. So it, it's quite an experience to see one of these. There are only three more left in the, in the manifest. Um, and it's, they're pretty amazing things. The, the shuttle continues uphill with the solids burning and the, and the main engines for about two minutes until the main engines have done their job. They separate from the rest of the stack, parachute into the ocean where they get recovered and used on another flight. And for that first two minutes, there's a lot of vibration and shaking going on inside. Some of my friends who are pilots said that, you know, I trained for two years to read the engine gauges and I can't see them because <laughs> your head is really bobbing around. Um, if you can imagine being in the back of a pickup truck with a chair lying on its back, not one of these nice soft ones, really hard metal one, um, going down railroad tracks with a bowling ball on your chest. That's about what first stage feels like. I w wouldn't recommend that you try that, but if you can imagine that, there's about that much vibration and shaking going on. And then after the solids separate, um, it gets really smooth. It's a very, like electric cart ride, you know, no, no vibrations at all for the next six minutes. But the acceleration builds up to um, three Gs. Toward the end of, of ascent, about the last minute and a half, we're, we are the actually pull, the main engines throttle back so that we don't exceed three Gs. And that's not a people limitation. The, the vector is this way. We're lying on our back, so it's pushing this way. And, and humans have a tolerance way higher than three Gs in, in that direction. But it, it's an aircraft limitation. And we have two wings and a tail and an external tank and complicated aerodynamics going on between them. And so we want to take care of that airframe because we need it for coming home. Um, in the Apollo program and in the whatever future programs we have, we're going back to streamline rockets where we don't worry about wings and tails. And they're going to pull much higher Gs getting into orbit. But this was actually a pretty gentle ride. Um, when we get to space in the shuttle, the cargo bay's ha doors have to come open pretty quickly. And that's because there are radiators on the inside of these that um, get rid of the heat that's generated by the fuel cells and all the electronics on board. If we can't get the doors open, we have to actually come home within three revolutions of the Earth or it um, will overheat. But we've never had a problem with that. Um, this door is fully open. You can't see it. This one is partially open. And there it is. This is a space lab module. As I mentioned, the shuttle was its own destination before we had a space station in orbit. And so um, one of the things we did was become a space station for two weeks. So this is like this tin can in the cargo bay, and you get to it by floating through a tunnel from the airlock into that. So it's pressurized, it's temperature controlled, it's a shirt sleeve environment where you just wear polo shirts and trousers and socks. You don't need any shoes, but socks to keep your, your feet warm, and, and manage to, um, to do a lot of experiments and keep this thing operating 24 hours a day for the two weeks that we are in orbit. 
One of the really fun things, and I don't want to run over time here with my goofy stories, but one of the fun things to do is, um, is to kick off the mid-deck lockers and cruise into this tunnel. And the tunnel has almost a round cross-section. So if you kick off the locker and you give yourself just a little bit of a roll, you don't really know that you're rolling. And so if you started out with your nose pointing at the floor, when you get to the lab, you expect your nose to be pointing at the floor, and it's not. And so you look around and you're totally lost. You have no idea where you are until your eye finally catches something that, that your brain recognizes and then the reference frame in your brain flips instantly. And you go, okay, I know, I'm pointed this way. But you can do that over and over and over again. <laughs> uh, we don't spend a lot of time in orbit playing, but, but it's, uh, it's pretty fantastic when you get a chance. This is the inside of the Space Lab module. And my friends Katie and Fred on my last flight operating a number of different experiments along the walls, the ceiling, the floor. It doesn't really matter because uh, it doesn't matter. Um, we um, typically train in this environment. All the simulators on Earth, obviously, your feet have to be on the floor. And so um, we, we mostly worked in that orientation because that's the way the switches are labeled and that's the way you're used to doing it. And uh, to do it otherwise you know, invites an opportunity to make a mistake. But uh, we probably did it a few times, flipped over upside down and ran some experiments. Um, there, there are a lot of things that we're doing in orbit um, in that environment, learning to use that environment and what it's good for. You know, every, every national lab and every international lab in the world has a unique capability, something that can be done at that laboratory that can't be done anywhere else. And it may be large magnets, it may be large accelerators, it may be some other kind of instruments. Um, but this is an environment where we get to take that troublesome G out of all those equations. For those of you who studied science and, and G was a complicating factor in a lot of things we did, take that out, we begin to understand those phenomena better and then can reapply it once we get back to Earth. We also study um, how our bodies adapt to that environment because we will someday in this space age send people on long duration flights in space and we need to know um, what changes are going to happen in their body, how can we um, maintain their conditioning so that when they land on Mars, for instance, they uh, can get out and do their work where there's not a rescue crew there to pull them out. Um, so that's one of the reasons. The other is that some of the conditions that crew members experience in orbit are similar to conditions that we experience here. Well, the most obvious one is osteoporosis, where crew members lose about 1% of their bone mass per month in orbit. And so that's a pretty accelerated case of osteoporosis. If we can figure out how to deal with that for people in space, perhaps we can learn how to deal with that for those of us here on Earth. There are changes in our cardiovascular system, our heart volume, uh, the way our lungs fill with air, our immune system. All sorts of changes happen to uh, crew members, and, and we study them when the crew members will participate. Uh, this happens to be one physician drawing blood from another one, which I think is fair game. There were also some other really fun ones like muscle biopsies and things like that that uh, fortunately I did not get assigned to do. We also study physical phenomena in space. This is a birthday candle, and it's not because somebody had a birthday in space. Uh, it's, it's more of a demonstration than an experiment, although we did some combustion experiments. But if you look at the shape of that, it's not the typical teardrop shape that you see on your birthday cake, um, that, because that requires gravity. Here, the hot gases from combustion go up, the cool oxygen gets sucked in the bottom, and that causes that flame to have that shape. But in orbit, where you don't have gravity making that happen, it's a, it's a more rounder shape. And if we, um, on some of the experiments, we actually burn drops of liquid fuel. And the liquid drop was a sphere, and, and it was really neat to watch, because you could see 
you could see the, the liquid drop, and you could see the area outside of that, which was the vaporized state of the fuel, and outside of that was sort of a spherical shell of flame, like candy on an M&M. And you could watch the drop shrink in size as it was being consumed until finally there was <coughs> enough pollutants in that, meaning water, which is a byproduct of combustion, till it extinguished itself. So really interesting experiments that are being done to understand uh, combustion in, uh, in the absence of gravity, which is important not only for spaceflight but also for, for jet engines here in this environment. And we also have the space repair business and now the space construction business with the space station. This is the Hubble Space Telescope uh, on its, our first visit to it in 1993. Uh, we changed out the wide field and planetary camera and some other instruments on board that. Um, this is the wide field and planetary camera uh, that sends back the gorgeous pictures that we see from Hubble. And when, when Hubble was launched, I'm sure many of you remember, there was a problem with the primary mirror and it uh, was sending back blurry pictures because of spherical aberration. There is a, a mirror in there that's about eight feet in diameter and it's ground too flat by about the diameter of a hair or less. And that was enough that it couldn't live up to the enormous expectations we all had for that telescope. And so when Hubble was designed, it was always intended to have visits from crew members every three years or so to fix things that were broken, to install new instruments as better technology or different investigations became important, and also to boost its altitude. There, you know, it can, its altitude continues to decrease as it orbits the Earth because even at 300 miles, there's still a tiny little bit of atmosphere up there, enough to cause drag and make its, its altitude decrease. And so there's no, there are no jets on this thing. So somebody has to go visit it every few years and pump it back up to a new altitude. So that's what we did, that we were the first group to go visit it. And while we were there, we installed this instrument, which had on the front end of it, there's a little mirror that's about this big that um, has the corrective optics. So the, the distorted light front hits this mirror, gets corrected, and then gets reflected into the telescope, into the, the camera. So that was the fix for that instrument. The fix for all the rest of them was something, a box about the size of a telephone booth that we called CoStar. And that's me on the mechanical arm moving this, on Earth, 700-pound instrument with just fingertips. It's, it's amazing how super strong you can be once you get up there. And that's my friend Tom inside giving directions. Although moving this thing was, pretty, was really, really easy, seeing where I was putting it was impossible because all I could see was silver in front of my face. And so we had, uh, we had directions from him and also from Claude, who was Nicoya, who was running the mechanical arm that I was on. And so we installed the CoStar. Um, we also changed out the solar rays. There were problems with them. The solar rays were causing some jitter into the telescope, so we put on new solar rays. One of them, the old ones, did not roll up. They were supposed to roll up like a window shade, and we and were going to bring them back. One of them did, and one of them didn't. So we brought one back, and the other one we had to throw away. So once again, I was on the arm and got to throw this thing away, and it was just amazing. It was over... Um, the deserts in the Middle East, which is probably one of the most beautiful places to look at from space because there's very little vegetation. It's just this bright gold color and the you know, beautiful blue of the oceans. So it was over that, and we turned it loose, and, and it was just sort of hanging there. And then um, the pilot fired the jets to move us away from that solar ray. And the exhaust from those jets hit the solar ray, and it bent over almost double. And then it sprang out, and it was just this flapping thing cruising over the deserts in the Middle East. It was just incredible. It was amazing. 
There's some parts of that that were in an IMAX movie, which are actually the best. Um, this, is a, this is a frame from an IMAX movie because the IMAX camera is about the size of a person. And it was in the window, and it was the only thing getting a picture at the time. Hubble is looking at a star that is 12 billion light years from here. It's, it's collecting light that was created 12 billion years ago. And so it's a time machine. It's looking back in time. So it, it, in principle, if we can look far enough back in time, we can see the beginning of time. If we can look far enough out in space, we see the beginning of time. And that's what Hubble and other instruments are attempting to do. Well, this is Pope John Paul II. You probably can't see that. Um, apparently, he was very happy with us because we took a photo of heaven. And he's also the pope who finally, after 350 years, pardoned Galileo for that, for that geocentric, or heliocentric universe thing he had going. So he's a great guy, and he was very happy with us. This is, I don't know if there's any astronomy, I know there's some astronomy buffs in here, so if I slaughter this, I apologize. This is the Eagle Nebula. It's um, about 7,000 light years from here. And um, these little, little points right here are baby stars being born. So it's a, it's a stellar nursery where the interstellar dust is collapsing on itself and forming new stars. So this is 7,000 light years from here. So this is what it looked like 7,000 years ago, about the time we were inventing the wheel. This is what it looked like. Um, and if we want to know what it looks like today, we have to wait another 7,000 years to find out. Um, when we're not uh, working, uh, looking at the Earth is one of the favorite pastimes up, out there. In fact, in some senses, it is work because we are tasked with taking certain photographs. If you see a picture of the Earth that looks like this, you'll know it's not from the shuttle program. This was taken by the last guys to come back from the moon. We don't get far enough away to see this. If you can imagine shrinking the Earth to the size of a basketball, a typical shuttle and space station orbit is a quarter to a half an inch above that surface. So we are just barely creeping around the edge of this planet. We are not exploring space at this moment. Um, but we're, we're doing some cool stuff. This is what you see from the shuttle. So you can see the Earth is round. I have seen the curvature of the Earth. I buy that. Um, it's really pretty. The atmosphere is very thin, kind of like fuzz on a tennis ball. And a lot of it looks like maps, surprisingly. <laughs> so, you know, most of us know enough geography of coastlines to know where we are when we're over the coastline of almost any of the continents because we did study that. Um, but when you're over the interior of a continent, it's a lot harder to figure out where you are because the, the rivers and lakes and cities and things that are landmarks are a lot harder to see than you might imagine. So normally there's a, a laptop on the flight deck that has a world map and a little shuttle icon ticking across it so that you know where you are. It's kind of important. So this is Cape Cod. Most people would recognize that. This is another cape. This is Cape Canaveral in Florida. So for those of you who are going down for a launch, this is where it's going to be. Um, I don't know if you can see that, but there are a lot of dots from this canal, this canal right here, all the way up to here. Every one of those dots is a launch pad. So this is the entire history of space flight, at least on the East Coast, in this country, is right in this picture. And it's, it's fascinating to fly over that. And um, some of, mo most of them are abandoned. The ones up here are the ones that are more active. Atlas, Deltas, um, Titans, and the two shuttle launch pads are right here. This is the shuttle landing strip. So they launch here and they land there, not too far apart, but they go millions of miles in between. And the shuttle gets, uh, has no power on it after it lands, so it gets towed across here to the industrial area. So this is the vertical assembly building where it gets stacked on another uh, set of boosters and, and hauled out to the launch pad on a big crawler for the next mission. So that's sort of the life cycle of a, of a space shuttle. We often say that we don't see political borders in space because we're all one big planet and we need to learn to get along. And, and that's, for the most part, that's true. But there are some places where we do see political borders. This is the border between Israel and Egypt. 
And you see it because of differences in land use on either side. There, we see some borders, uh, some places in, uh, in Africa, um, and also parts of the U.S.-Mexico border, where there's uh, irrigation on the U.S. side and none on the Mexican side, and so you see a straight line. And your eyes are drawn to straight lines because they're not natural. So you get to see that. Uh, when we get ready to come home, and this is not a picture of a deorbit burn because they wouldn't have the cargo bay doors open and they couldn't get this picture without the cargo bay doors open. Uh, this is actually aurora. Isn't that, isn't that cool? This stuff coming up. This is the edge of the atmosphere right here. This is the edge of the earth here. And that's just sort of, that's aurora. It's really neat looking. And that's why they took this photo. But uh, my point is these are the orbital maneuvering engines right here. And when we get ready to come home, we have the cargo bay doors closed. And we're going about 25,000 feet per second. When we um, do the deorbit burn, we turn around sort of backwards and upside down and fire those, those orbital maneuvering engines and slow down about 300 feet per second. So 300 feet per second out of 25,000 is enough that it lowers our orbit to come into the atmosphere. And it's crashing through that atmosphere that causes the major braking action. So from going 17,500 miles an hour to landing at about 200 miles an hour, all that braking action, taking that energy out, um, is done by the atmosphere, not by, not by engines. Um, this is um, the crew ready for entry. This is the, the commander sits on this side, the pilot on that side. Um, this is all now gone to a glass cockpit because <laughs> nobody made the instruments anymore. So they had to advance on that. Um, and these are the windows they're looking out. This is some of the checklist that they're following. But it looks like the sun coming up over the nose, like you're, you're flying into the dawn. But it's actually not. That's the nose glowing white hot right outside that window on a night entry. So it's about 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit outside that window and uh, reasonably comfortable inside. And most of the time that works and we come home to our home port in Florida. You know, crew members take the space shuttle out. It's real clear to them that, that they don't own it, that they're borrowing it from the men and women at the Kennedy Space Center who build it, who put it together, who take care of it, who glue on the tiles and do all that stuff, and we're just borrowing it. So we really do spend the last day in orbit swabbing the decks in three dimensions to bring it home as, as clean as possible to the folks who let us borrow it. The shuttle will be retired next year. The last flight uh, is scheduled now for June of, of 11. And then uh, the three remaining shuttles will be retired and we'll move on to something else. Um, we do have a space station in orbit, and that will continue in operation um, for a number of years. We have, once we retire the shuttle, we have no way to get Americans there except to buy seats with the Russians. And because they're the only game in town, the price is climbing. Um, and, and we knew that was going to happen in 2004 when the vision for space exploration um, came out we knew that there was going to be a gap between the time the last shuttle and the first launch of something else, whatever that something else was going to be. And um, it was going to be a pay-as-you-go process. And so as, as the program was chronically underfunded from 2004, that gap has, has extended out. And so um, I think we're, I'm not sure what the deadline, what the times are, 2015 maybe, until we can get uh, an American launch capability in orbit. Uh, and what that's going to be, we don't know. Um, up until um, very recently, it was going to be this um, Ares-1 rocket, Orion um, crew, crew capsule on here. We're going back to the gumdrop-shaped capsules as opposed to airplanes. And that was going to get people into orbit and sort of be a multi-purpose capsule that could eventually take people onto the moon and Mars and, and wherever. 
that has um, recently been changed. The president's um, space vision is, is somewhat different, and I personally am on board with that. Um, and that's to turn transportation of people to low Earth orbit, the taxi service, the truck service of getting people just to low Earth orbit over to American industry. Instead of being a government program, we are trusting Russian industry. We are investing you know, billions of dollars in Russian aerospace industry to fly people up there. Um, I personally think we should be investing in American industry to fly people up there and, and then release NASA to do real exploration again instead of just going around the world thousands of times. Um, so the um, NASA reappropriation bill was just passed on Wednesday and that um, provides a lot of money, not a lot of money, provides some funding or, or allows some funding for um, U.S. commercial crewed flights to space, people flights to space, to low Earth orbit, building those capabilities. And there are companies around there that are ready to do it. Uh, SpaceX is one. This happens to be a picture of the SpaceX Dragon, uh, Falcon 9 with the Dragon capsule on the top. Um, but there are others out there that are in the running to be able to do that. And then we could turn NASA loose for real exploration. This is uh, an artist's concept of the uh, Orion capsule joining up on the space station. This is an artist's concept of the um, SpaceX Dragon capsule joining up on, this, on the space station. So, um, you know, the real possibilities there for, for letting, getting American industry in the game as launching people to low Earth orbit and then freeing NASA to do the really cool stuff. There is, um, in the new appropriation, there is a continuation of the heavy lift vehicle, which will send cargoes to space that will ultimately allow us to go to the moon or um, another destination like an asteroid. You know, to, to go to an asteroid, you have to solve a lot of the problems of flying in deep space that you have to solve to go to Mars. So there are some intermediate stepping stones that we can actually accomplish over the next decades that will position us to actually explore beyond just the Earth-Moon system. And eventually, this is our ultimate destination, I think, of, of this um, era of exploration in, in this time. Um, it, I'm intrigued by the new, um, the new direction and, uh, and getting NASA out of low Earth orbit for the first time in 40 years. Um, so I think it's a positive thing. I know that it's, um, there's a lot of heartbreak and job loss. M most of that was predetermined in 2004 that it was going to happen, that we were going to have a gap. And it, it's, it's a painful time, but, but I think out of that there will be a rebirth of a, a new and invigorated exploration model. And not to worry, we won't run out of things to do, ever. We're, there's plenty, plenty, plenty of stuff out there to explore, and, and uh, I hope we're on a trajectory to begin to do that now. So I think we are, um, need to adjourn here and then move to another room. Thank you. After the talk, the audience moved to the Virginia room so Thornton could answer questions. I attended West Virginia University and uh, in civil engineering, and there was a group of fellow students there did um, some microgravity testing and took a trip to NASA. I just wondered if you were a part of that, any of the microgravity testing on Earth yeah. while they were there at NASA. Uh, when were they there? Uh, 2004. No, I was. I left there in '96, so I wasn't part of that. So, but it's a, it's a great question about microgravity fluids research. Did they fly on the vomit comet? They did. Yeah, it lives up to its reputation. Yeah. <laughs> it, uh, 
the, the, tr the cruise on it, for those of you who don't know, it's, a, it's an aircraft that flies parabolas. They go over the Gulf of Mexico in a test range and they fly parabolas. And when you go over the top, you get about 20 seconds of near weightlessness. When you go to the bottom, you get about equal amount or more of 2G pullout. And that transition from 0 to 2, 0 to 2, um, often upsets people. Um, and they, the crews on there are bulletproof. I mean, they can, they, nothing bothers them. Um, and so but they talk about confirmed kills. So they rate flights in terms of confirmed kills and suspected kills. Um, but they're kind of fun. Who else? Yes. Um, in NASA, or uh, in Apollo, um, they talked about getting sparkles, uh, seeing bright specks, mm -hmm. and it was radiation hitting the eye. Did you get that? It's a good question. About I'm doing this for the podcast. There's um, about um, flashes in your eyes up there. I did not, but some of my crewmates did. And, in fact, one of them knew when we passed through the South Atlantic anomaly, when he was sleeping at night, because that's a place where the magnetic field lines of the Earth dip down, and so we are above more of them, and so more of the radiation actually gets to us. And so he, he, could, he could sense that increase in his eyes. And I, I never could, but I think it's because, you know, as soon as I close my eyes, I'm asleep. <laughs> he must have had trouble sleeping. I don't know. But I, I never, I, I wanted to see that and never did. You had a question? Somebody back there, Dan. May I have? Yes. Yes, sir. Did you meet any of the other uh, astronauts uh, prior to your time, the ones that went to the moon uh, and Yes, I did meet uh, a lot. Of John Young was still there um, when I was there, and, and um, there were reunions every couple of years, and people would come through. So it's kind of a, an interesting. Did you meet Ron Evans? No, I did not. It's kind of an interesting uh, a group. And then we went down to Florida this past June for the Hall of Fame induction, and there are a lot of those guys are in that. And so I got to meet some more that I hadn't met before, and and hear some, you know, lots of interesting behind the scenes stories. Yes. Are you involved in any lobbying activities for Congress with respect to the space program? Is there a group that is? Let's see. Am I involved in any lobbying? Um, I have called my congressman and senator a couple times in the last few weeks. Um, I am one of the signatories. I don't know if you saw the New York Times article. There was a, a letter to um, to uh, Representative Bart Gordon from 14 Nobel laureates and a bunch of other people. I'm part of the bunch of other people. Uh, that signed off on that, endorsing the Senate's appropriation um, bill that was ultimately also approved by, by the House this past week. So, yeah, I, I, I do from time to time express my opinion now that I'm no longer with NASA, I'm allowed to have one, um, and, and I express it occasionally. Yes, sir. A lot of the uh, earlier came up through the military programs. And how did you, what, what route did you take to get there? I worked for the Army here in Charlottesville, but as a civilian. And so I applied to NASA as a civilian in 1983 and um, just got incredibly lucky. That's all I can say. Yes, sir. Um, so I was interested that you support the uh, administration's new plan for space exploration. Uh, I do too, but you're an expert. Uh, so, what really uh, of the goals going to asteroids, uh, the moon, I personally think the ultimate goal is getting to Mars, and and whatever intermediate steps we take to get there uh, are less uh, important to me, other than that they need to be intermediate steps. 
There needs to be some reason for going there that feeds forward to the next step, which feeds forwards to the next step. And, and what I was hearing about the, the lunar program um, prior to this new vision um, wasn't that. It was, you know, the, the vision for space exploration in 2004 was originally moon, Mars, and beyond. And almost immediately, Congress passed legislation that truncated that to moon. And so given that all NASA had was a mission to the moon, the plans were developing for like a 50-year base on the moon, which in my opinion would be an anchor for two generations, that we would do nothing but that for two generations if that's what we did. If we need the moon for an, internet, for an intermediate um, step where we learn something we have to know, that's okay, but I don't see, really see that. I think there are other places like asteroids where you have to solve the deep space problems of getting there, but you don't have to have a launch and a lander which are going to be very, very uh, critical parts of a mission to Mars. Obviously, you have to be able to land it and take off. An asteroid, you just rendezvous with it. You don't really have to have that. You can go to some of the moons of Mars where you've solved all the problems of getting there uh, but still not have to have the criticality of a launcher and a lander for the first time. So, you know, there are lots of, of, of not baby steps because they're all huge. There are lots of huge steps to get to this audacious goal. Um, and I think we ought to be taking steps. That's sort of my two cents on it. Yes, sir. Uh, where's the science going for the next generation space transport system? We seem to be taking a step back with getting rid of the shuttle, going back to just a rocket. What do you see going out 10, 15 years from now as far as the next generation transport system? You know, I'm, I'm certainly not an expert on that, but, but I do know that one of the budgets that has been decimated over the last six years to continue to fund the, the, the underfunded ARIES program is the technology budget. And so I think we have been robbing that for years. We've not been investing in that. And so one of the, the aspects of, of this new plan and was partially authorized by the Senate is more money back into advanced technology to figure out the answer to your question. I don't know what it is, but unless we, unless we attempt to learn that and put money in that budget, I don't know how we're ever going to know what it is. We'll, we'll go back to flying Apollos, which actually we can't do. <laughs> you know, things we did in that period, we can't do now. Are we just going to advocate to the Russians on that? You, you said we're paying them money to... No, no. I think um, we are... I hope that we are putting money into American aerospace industry so that American industry can do what we're paying the Russians to do, which is get people to low Earth orbit. Um, and, and they're fully capable of doing that. Every vehicle that's ever launched was built by American industry, every U.S. vehicle. They're not built by the government. They're, they're built by industry, and so they're, they're fully capable of doing that. Um, I think what they need, though, is, is for the government not to compete with them. And I don't think that's not an ironclad agreement in any of this right now that the government will not compete with American industry in getting these things launched. Yes, ma'am. Well, what should the um, rhetoric be to promote the reason that we're going into outer space compared to using the money for something down the um, The justification. Well, I have, I, have, I have a number of answers to that. Some are more flippant than others. One of them is that we don't spend any of that money in outer space. You know, when I launched, we had 70 cents. And the reason we had 70 cents on board is, is the cameras we were using were the old Hasselblad cameras that went to the moon, fabulous cameras, 70-millimeter format. And occasionally when you were changing lenses, that would get, the little device would get cocked. And the best tool for straightening that out was a dime. So there was a dime taped to each of the cameras. So that's how I know we had 70 cents when we went to orbit. 
and, and nothing more. So none of that money is spent in space. Um, I think on the space program. Well, a lot of that, that actually comes back in terms of spinoffs and, and other things that we do. But, but I, by and large, I don't think you can ever – I see people writing this down. I don't think you can ever um, justify exploration in terms of return on investment. I think that that was part of the reason we got into being stuck in low Earth orbit, because we attempted to do that. Um, I think you, it's hard to quantify the inspiration as human beings that we get from doing something like that, even vicariously, even though I'm not going to get to go to Mars. But I think it's incredibly inspiring. When I go to a class of, of school kids, two things can turn them on. One is dinosaurs and the other is space. And try as they might, they're not going to be dinosaurs. But there are opportunities for them in exploration, whether it's space or under the ocean or medical or whatever, there are opportunities for them there. And so I think that, that it's very hard to quantify that inspiration, but it is real. Yes, sir. Uh, one of the things, I, I agree in principle, too, in principle with the new direction. I, I do think there's too much focus on returning to the moon, and I was glad to see us trying to go out to the asteroids, you know, near-Earth objects, and uh, work our way to Mars. But the thing I'm very um, worried about long-term is it does seem like decade after decade, this is since the moon landings, year after year, the NASA budget keeps decreasing. And I'm a little worried that in four or five years we're going to say, well, we need three more years. We're going to stop using the Russians in 2015. Now it's going to be 2020. And at some point it just dissipates. At some point the, the American people, uh, I'm, just, I'm just nervous about not being able to meet our goals as we proceed on this new plan. Um, yeah, and with good reason. It's, it's a pay-as-you-go, as it was beginning with the 2004. Uh, you know, we will stretch out the schedule if that's what it takes to get it done uh, in the budget. Right. Yeah, that's hard to do. That's hard to do in a in a world of, you know, four-year administrations, two-year congresses, and one-year budgets to to have a commitment for a long-term project. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes, sir. How much do we pay the Russians to send one of our people? Um, you know, when, when, they, we first, when the Russians first started um, launching tr tourists or civilians into orbit, I think it was about a $20 million trip. I think it's, um, I don't know for sure, but I'd heard 50 to 75 now. They are capitalists, and <laughs> they've got the only game in town. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, from Earth orbit to Mars and back, do you anticipate nuclear rockets being used for that to cut down the time and whatever? Um, I personally don't, but but it's certainly an option because you, if you can get there faster, you can get back faster. Yeah, if you absolutely. But it's it's one of the technologies that needs to be further developed, not just for human spaceflight, but but even for for the um, the robotic missions in order to get to some of the outer planets. We have to have um, things like that, RTGs in particular. Um, but there's... We're paying, we're paying Russia for Blue 238. I know, because we're running out. We don't have any more. I know. And we could do it here. Yeah. It's, it's a, that, I think, is an education thing. You know, it's, it's fear about nuclear power and nuclear energy. You know, in Europe, they have lots of nuclear power plants, but they will not touch genetically engineered food. We have that at every grocery store you go to, but we are terrified of nuclear. So it's it's a PR thing. Yeah, I think so. Yes, sir. 
approximately 50 years ago, we set a very high technological goal for our nation, get to the moon within a decade. That goal drove a tremendous development of technology that put us at the technological forefront of the world. Since, whatever it was, the roughly 1970, we haven't had such a goal, and we have seen our our position on the technological pole shrink, I believe. Do you see any value in setting some big goal for the value of driving technology? Absolutely, and it's been tried before and not necessarily successful. The first President Bush said we're going to go to Mars, and the second President Bush said we're going to go to Mars. But what drove it in the 70s was not just exploration, it was national defense. It was the Russians. Um, what drove um, the space station design as it is now with the Russians as part of the, of the core of it is the unemployed scientist after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the, and the desire to engage the Soviet Union as a partner in that. So it's, it's not, you know, there are a lot of um, national security State Department initiatives that are, that are part of the space program or drive the space program the way it is um, now. I think one of the reasons we are finishing the space station instead of saying, ah, never mind, is because we have commitments to a number of international partners who have put their money in it and we're not willing to, to let them down. I think without that commitment to international partners right now, we would have just tanked the space station and said, ah, oh, we're tired of that, let's go do something else. And so there is there's real value, I think, in, in these, these um, external drivers that, that, that force us to push forward at times when we may not want to. Um, you know, I wouldn't want to see another Cold War to do that, but, but um, you know, international cooperation it becomes one of those drivers that, that keeps us on track when we don't, maybe don't want to be on that track anymore. Yes, sir? Um, the heavy lift rockets that are going to be needed for the new objectives, uh, American companies are way in the lead on that. I mean, aren't they sort of endorsing that? Uh, the new plans and so forth, and privatizing all of this stuff. Um, SpaceX and SpaceX, yes. That that's some of the the startup companies, the new companies that want to get in the game. The the companies who right now have these contracts who are about to get canceled are less enthusiastic no, know, about the plan. But one of the the um, the compromises for that is that the Senate authorization directs um, development of the heavy lift booster which is the Ares 5 um, by 2015, and that is um, a lot of shuttle derivative technology. So the, the people who are going to be part of this Constellation program, there's a piece of that right now that's being retained. The Orion capsule, which is fairly far in development, is being, I th I'm not 100% sure of this, but is being retained as a lifeboat for the space station. So it would still be built. Um, but there at least is some money in the in the author, or some authorization in the new bill that um, that allows support for sp companies like SpaceX who who want to build an American capability to get people to low Earth orbit, not to send them to the moon or Mars or anywhere else, just get them to low Earth orbit, and and be the taxi service and the trucks. They already under the COTS program are are um, developing. Um, cargo transportation to low Earth orbit into the space station. 
So it's just a step beyond that. I mean, a big step beyond that, obviously, to send people. But there's no question in my mind they can do it. We know they can do it. Yes, sir. Just a question. What were some of the stuff that you did in order to get into the NASA program and possibly into space? Um, I got incredibly lucky. <laughs> That's one thing I can say. Um, I had my Ph.D. in physics from here. And I was working for the Army Science and Technology, Foreign Science and Technology Center, which is now NGIC, um, and um, just saw the announcement that NASA was selecting the next group and thought, what the heck? You know, all I do is say no. It's like a chance in a billion, like, you know, getting struck by lightning or something. Um, but somebody, it's like winning the lottery, really. You know, you have to, to win the lottery, you have to buy a ticket. So getting the education in the background is buying the ticket. But then you have to win the lottery. Well, that's a good place to end this. We have time for like one more, and then it's time to go to the game. Yes, sir. I was wondering what your opinion is about the Chinese program in space. Yeah, they just launched a, um, a lunar mission yesterday, their second yesterday. Um, they uh, are looking for, as I read the press release, um, sites for robotic landers um, on, on on the moon, and uh, but it's but they have no immediate time frame for sending people there. I think it's great. I think the more the merrier in this game. And, and we move on out. I think if we do go to Mars someday, it will be an international cooperative venture. So the more our partners know and are capable of, I think the better it is for all of us. Okay, okay, this is the last one. <laughs> um, why would China want to go with the robots to the moon? And who actually owns them? Uh, no one owns the moon. There is an outer space treaty that says that no one will own the moon. And there was a huge uh, discussion about that here in the United States about, you know, what kind of flag should we plant? And we decided to plant an American flag. But, but by treaty, no one owns the moon. Um, so that's a great place to end this. And I hope you all enjoy the football game. And uh, go Wahoos. <laughs>